Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We come before the word and ask, Lord, that you'd speak to us with revelation and light. Holy Spirit, I pray, have your way this morning. I pray for the flooding of our eyes with light, the entrance of your word. It brings light. So release revelation to us today. I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Stand with me here. Hold my hand. Let me speak as one that's an oracle. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Good. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Okay, turn with me in your Bible to to Malachi chapter 2. And uh, we're on our fifth part of our sermon series we've been doing called The Glory of Marriage. And we've been laying lots of good foundations and and redefining best we can by the word uh, things regarding marriage. What is marriage? What is love? Different things of this nature. Um, I've been getting testimonies as people have been listening just even to these four little sermons. uh, People that have... uh, had real challenges in their marriage and the Lord just dropping, uh, you know, revelation on them and, and, and them shifting things around. I'm getting, I'm getting a fair number of testimonies just as we just proclaim truth about marriage from the scripture. It's, a, it's amazing to me how the Lord will take every opportunity and utilize it for his glory and, and bring people uh, to the knowledge of God and closer to him. I, uh, so today what we're going to talk about is the purposes for marriage. I wouldn't think there's one singular purpose, or maybe I thought there was a singular purpose for marriage. Uh, I've found there's, it's a many-faceted, there's uh, many things that the Lord is doing uh, in the covenant of marriage, and, and He has many reasons for marriage. And uh, so there's a multifaceted uh, purpose for marriage. It's got m- many different tiers. And, uh, and I was, you know... Just several weeks ago, just praying, saying, Lord, speak to me about the issues of, of, of marriage and what's the purpose for it. And I, I got one verse that came to my mind, and it was the, this Malachi 2 verse. And so I began to study it. It's the, it's the one where it says, the Lord seeks godly offspring. And I thought, wow, that's, that's one of your main purposes for marriage, to have, so people have babies. Wow. And I was just trying to get like, my heart to come alive over that point. Because all of a sudden I started thinking of God as this heavenly dog breeder. And I just, <laughs> it wasn't moving me a bit. Because <laughs> we just, we've got a bulldog and we just had bulldog puppies. And as much as that was fun, I'm not trying to just make more puppies. And I, and I was saying, Lord, so, so that's, that's where you're at. And, and what happened was, I, as I began to meditate and study and and uh, pray, I realize that the Malachi 2 verse that's often used that God is seeking godly offspring is one of the chief purposes for marriage is actually not a purpose for marriage at all. In fact, uh, when I began to delve into Malachi 2, I began to realize, well, that's not at all what this is about anyway. It's actually um, a, a, mis, a misapplication of the text and a, a misinterpretation in, in the text. And, and so has, how many have ever heard that, that one of the reasons God gets us married is to have godly offspring. Anybody? I mean, I've heard messages on that point, and I, and I thought, well, okay, we're gonna have godly offspring then. That's what we do. But let me just—I want to take you through this. I'm gonna do a little seven-minute teaching on this point, and then I want to—I want to take you through other things that I do think are the purposes for marriage. Uh, sometimes when we have knots in our understanding, it creates a, a lens that causes us not to 
be able to receive other truth rightly. And so the first thing I want to do is just pull a knot out uh, because that's what happened with me. I, I was studying this and I thought, woo, one of the main reasons is for, for us to have godly babies. And um, I mean, God does want godly babies for sure. And, and he encourages uh, uh, Adam and Eve to, to ha- take dominion and, and, and multiply, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion and subdue the earth. But uh, this teaching from Malachi, I just want to touch it for a minute because what I realized it did in my heart was I thought, well, that's what God's into. He's just trying to get us together so we'll just multiply and have lots of children. And It made me feel a way about God that's not actually right about God. And so it, it made me feel like he's a little bit impersonal in regard to my marriage rather than uh, just totally connected. Because if it's just he's trying to hook us up so that he, he wants godly offspring, and that's why he's hooking us up, then that, that to me it created a, a barrier uh, between me and him. It didn't create an openness, but... It, it, it created an impersonal touch uh, that, I, that I felt like the Lord had rather than this personal connectedness that the Lord had. So let me just work you through this one. I know several have heard this before, and I just want to get it out there. And then I'm going to go through what I, what I deem to be the purposes, uh, not the exhaustive list, but the purposes, some of the purposes for marriage. So Malachi 2, let's look at this, verse 15. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. And you'll see there in the New King James Version that, that he is capitalized and, and that the he in the first uh, sentence is capitalized. So we would take that to be God. God made them one, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your own spirit, and let no one deal uh, treacherously with the wife of his youth. Now, that's the NKJV. The context of the chapter is this. The, the people are experiencing curses. They're, they're experiencing uh, uh, leanness in their soul. They're, they're, they're not experiencing the grace and the blessing of the Lord. And the Lord is bringing a word through pro- the prophet Malachi, and he's bringing a correction to them. And he's saying, you know, you, you cry over the altar, and, and you weep, and you wail, and you say, the Lord's not in it. And, 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 you know, you ask, well, where am I? And he says, well, the reason why I'm not in it right now is because you're dealing treachery, treacherously with the wives of your youth. And what that meant was this. They would have a, a wife, but then they were also, at the same time, marrying foreign uh, wives, wives of, that were worshiping foreign gods. And what the people were doing is uh, they were pointing to Abraham, their, their father in the faith, as the example as to why they were allowed to do this thing. They said, Abraham, remember, he was married to Sarah, and he took Hagar. And so this is something reasonable for us to do. And that was the, that was the argument the people were putting forth. And so Malachi, in chapter 2 of Malachi, the Lord is... is uh, He's correcting that mentality of, of these men who were actually marrying women who were worshiping foreign gods in addition to their own wives. And so when you see deal treacherously with the wife of your youth, that's what he's talking about. That's the context that gives us an understanding of what's going on here. So when we get to verse 15, we have a little funny way that the, the interpreters handled it. Let me read it to you in the New American Standard Version. It's just amazing how different the text is. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do? And this is speaking, that one is speaking of Abraham. Because he's addressing this issue of men 
pointing to Abraham as an example by which they could add wives to their lives and, and marry foreign women. But what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Remember Abraham had the words from the Lord where he was going to be the father of many nations. He was going to have children as as many as the stars in the sky and and as as many as the sand on the beaches. Remember that? He had those words. And so what did he do? He was seeking that godly offspring. So instead of staying and and focusing on that coming through his wife Sarah, he grabs Hagar, Sarah's uh, servant. And Sarah said, yes, this is what we're going to do. And and he he has Ishmael with Hagar. Remember that point? Well, they would point to that and they'd say, that's what we're doing too. We want more wives just like Abraham. And, and Malachi is saying this. No, the reason that that came about to begin with is because Abraham, he, though he was a miss, he was actually trying to do the will of the Lord. <laughs> he wasn't trying just to fulfill his lust by getting another wife. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? He goes, therefore, take heed to your own spirit And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. What we see in uh, the New American Standard Version, I think, is a more specific application of this text. And what does it do? It changes this concept. Though I do believe God wants us to have children, I believe that's a a good thing. He for sure blesses the, he says, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are like arrows in the hands of an archer. For sure the Lord is for children. He's happy about that. But the Lord is not dialing that deeply into the purpose that he brought you to your spouse. That, to me, is something that makes it very impersonal as to why God would have us to be married. So I just want to yank that knot out of the chain. If you're wondering if I just came up with this on my own, no, I've got about eight, and a cursory study. I mean, just just a light study of this. I found eight scholars that all back up this same idea. This is not actually what Malachi 2.15 is about. It's actually about pointing to Abraham. It's not about God saying, I want them to be married for this purpose. But the point I'm trying to make is this. The reason why I deal with that issue is this. When we have wrong thoughts about why God does stuff, we have wrong mentalities about his actions, one wrong mentality then will spill over into many uh, other areas of our life. If as a man you think one of the chief reasons that you're married, if not, if maybe in fact the reason you're married is just to sort of make your wife like a a baby maker forever, then you know you'll have a completely wrong concept of what God is even doing in marriage. And and when we have wrong ideas, those wrong ideas create wrong lenses. And if we can get the wrong ideas out of the way through through the proclamation of truth then what will happen is we'll come to a greater knowledge of God and we'll understand his ways better. Does that make sense? So I start off with sort of a kind of an intense little teaching on that point because I want to change our mentalities of marriage. What I'm realizing is the more I think about it, most uh, of the popular mentalities of marriage aren't quite, they're not quite what God's ideas are. That, that shouldn't be a surprise to me. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Most of our purposes for marriage are not his purposes for marriage. We get married for all sorts of reasons. We get married for emotional fulfillment. Um, some people get married for physical fulfillment. Some people get married for financial stability and, and all sorts of reasons. Some people get married because they just, I got to have the baby and they just get married for that. There's all sorts of reasons why people get married. It's amazing to me, though, that the, the, the chief reasons why the Lord does this issue of marriage aren't really our, our main ones. And, and it shouldn't be amazing to me because he thinks differently than us. 
But I'm finding this as we lock into his purposes, his reasons, then our hearts will unlock. Our hearts will come alive and we'll know his thoughts, his ways better. And we'll, we'll actually live our lives in light of his purposes for us rather than some contrived thing that we make up for ourselves or our own ambitions or desires. Okay. All right. With that in mind, flip over to Ephesians 5. And we're going to start with the purposes for marriage. I, uh, I was going to be real ambitious today and cram six purposes down your throat. But the more I looked at it, I thought, that's a bad idea. I was going eight minutes per purpose. It gets us to 48 minutes plus introduction and conclusion. Oh, man, I'm going to be flying. And then everybody will leave going like, what was that? What did he say? So... We're going to do three purposes today and three purposes next week if I don't find a few more purposes between now and next week, which I might find a few more. In that case, we'll do four or five purposes next week, but you never know. But three for today. First purpose for marriage. Marriage is a continuous living testimony of God's ultimate plan for humanity. And God's ultimate plan for humanity is a union with deity. So marriage is to continuously testify of where God is taking uh, all of humanity, where he's taking human history. I love this saying, and something we've preached and taught, and now it's something I just say, and I'll just say it in 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 a catchphrase, if I'm not at a wedding, it means it's not over yet. If I'm not at a wedding, this ain't the end. Because this thing is going to a wedding. So no matter how rough, you know, challenges and valleys get in life, I remind myself this, that if I'm not at a wedding, there's still a lot more to the story. I'm only somewhere in the middle. I'm not at the end. And that's one of the challenges of our lives is that many times when we have a problem, we look at the problem as if it's the end. But I promise you, beloved, if you're not at a wedding, it's not the end. Because that's where God is going to culminate human history in this age, is at a wedding. And at that wedding uh, ceremony, at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the most, I mean, shocking thing imaginable is going to take place. Humanity is going to be joined with deity eternally. Humanity is going to be joined with deity eternally. Jesus is going to have his bride And that is one of the most dramatic, incredible, I mean, it's a towering thought. If that one thought could be before your mind day in and day out, oh, you'd live your 70 years in this age with incredible focus and purpose. Because you comprehend that this isn't the end, and though I know I'm not made for this place, whatever's happening here is only preparing me for that. You and I, in Christ, you and I are going to be joined forever with the uncreated God. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then he gives us marriage for this chief purpose. I think potentially the premier purpose is to declare, it's a continuous declaration of that truth, that God has a plan for humanity, and the plan that God has for humanity is to be united with himself. Oh my gosh. I I went out to dinner with my wife the other night. 
We had one of those dates that starts on a bad note. You ever had one of those? It's just bad. That's a bummer. Ruin a whole date. There's this, in the past, we had this one restaurant. Seemed like if we went to that restaurant, we got in a fight. I don't know why. I remember after doing that about three times, my wife said, I hate that restaurant. I was like, I kind of like the food she gets, but every time we go there, we get a fight. I go, yeah, that's right. Well, we kind of had that. We get our, 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 our date started on a bad note. And in the middle of this, it wasn't a full-fledged argument. It was just, it was a medium grade. You know what I mean? It was middle of the road argument. But in the middle of this argument, I'm, I'm, I'm reminding myself, while I can feel my emotions doing things I don't want them to do, I'm reminding myself, hey, the, the, the purpose for she and I together is to be a living testimony of where we're heading forever. Union with Jesus. And I begin to try to remind my soul that so I can get my soul under control. That's a good little phrase. Learn that. And you say it to your kids. It works real well. Get your soul under control. It's, just, it's theological. It's to the point. It's direct. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, that's whatever's happening right now. So this is what ended up happening with me. I, I, in my mind, I did this math. I said, whatever's happening right now with this disagreement, it's ultimately designed to prepare me for this future reality and that she and I together are a picture of that future reality. I'm going to become one with Jesus. And so whatever's going on here, it has to get handled because I'm to be a living testimony with my wife of the union that I'm going to have with Christ. That's why he gave me marriage. I started working it through and we ended up, you know, hitting the points and working it through and loving each other and forgiving and just moving through and had a really nice date. And, but that backdrop of revelation, the continuous testimony, the continuous declaration that if we're not at a wedding, it's not over yet, that we're heading to a wedding, that we're going to be united with deity, and that's why God's given us marriage. It was such a powerful truth that it enabled me to engage my soul in a different way uh, in the middle of a fight. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17. If you don't have that one, you've got to get that one in your, in your repertoire of verses that you've got remembered. He who is joined to the, to the Lord is one spirit with the Lord. One spirit with the Lord. I mean, that'll just put, you can go into a meditative flow for a while on that one singular point. You know, the interesting thing of that context, the First Corinthians uh, 6 right there, is Paul is dealing with the issue of adultery in the church. He's dealing with the issue of a man that's it's been uh, sleeping with a harlot. Because they're asking him questions. First Corinthians uh, the whole, much of the book, if you get that lens, you understand that he's addressing issues that he's either heard about or they've asked him directly about. And so he's addressing the issue of, of uh, uh, adultery and, and, and harlotry there in the church. And he says, don't you get it? Man, if you join yourself to a harlot, you've become, and then he quotes Moses from Genesis. He goes, you become one flesh with her, for the two shall become one flesh. Oh. And then he goes on to say this, because if you're joined to the Lord, you're one spirit 
with the Lord. And what's he doing? He's pointing to the union in marriage. He goes, you don't want to sever that or hurt that by, by doing adultery, man, because this thing, this union in marriage is a testimony of the union you have with God. Don't pervert that thing by, by doing adultery. Don't pervert that thing by getting into harlotry. The, the idea, guys, oh, God. The idea that extramarital affairs are sort of okay in our society, sort of accepted. That's one of the most perverse things I can imagine because marriage was always about God being joined to man. So what are we saying when, we are, when we're approving of uh, uh, adultery and we're approving of extramarital affairs? We're saying you don't really get joined to the Lord or it's okay to have other gods besides God. The testimony that it is, it's, it's, it's horrifying. Beloved, you and I, in our, in our marriages, with our spouse, this mystery of us becoming one with this person, that's a massive mystery. Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a testimony of a much greater mystery, and that greater mystery is this. We're one with the Lord, and we're going to be joined with Him forever. When you go home and you shut the door, you know, it's one thing, praise the Lord at church, when you go home and shut the door, oh, beloved, that that takes place between you and your spouse, it's critical that it's honoring and holy and it's, you're working through the challenges because you are a living testimony of where you're headed. And because of that, we've got to continue to work towards, working towards one another. And that's what this thing about being united is about. It's about always working towards another. We become one when we say our vows unto becoming one. Just like with Jesus, we become one spirit with the Lord unto the wedding day when we fully become one. It's the way it is with us in marriage. We become one when we say, I do, and then all the way the rest of our life, we become one. We're becoming one. We're on a journey. One author calls it the inner penetration of souls. What an interesting thought. The inner penetration of souls. Becoming one. And they use this example. They say, you know, it's funny, because, but after you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years of marriage, you'll find spouses who will actually say the exact same phrases to common friends, or they'll finish these other sentences when you're talking to both of them at the same time. You ever had that happen? You're talking to the spouse, and, and, and spouse one and spouse two, and they're right there, husband and wife, and, 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 and you're saying a thing, and then the, the husband begins to say a thing, and the, the, the wife finishes the sentence. It's kind of creepy a little bit. Because they're like joined. Well, they really are like joined. Their souls are being wrapped up around one another. And the chief way that we journey into becoming one, it's through communication. We communicate, we talk, we work things out, we, 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 we move toward each other. That's the key thought. You're moving toward each other through communicating. Whenever a spouse decides not to communicate or walls up their soul and won't let the other one in, you have just done violence to this issue of becoming one. We communicate, we open up, we become susceptible to the one another. To one another, we become susceptible to good things and negative things. But what's the, what's the point? It's that we're on a journey of becoming one. Why? Because we are a declaration of this truth that God wants to be one with humanity. We're living it out. You know, if this is all about me and having a fulfilled life and I've got to have a fulfilled marriage so my life will be fulfilled for me, 
I don't got the energy for it. It would be way more fulfilling for me just to go do what I want to do rather than being open and flowing and dealing with all these issues. Let's be honest. It would be fulfilling for me just to choose what I want to eat, go where I want to go, make all my own decisions and whatever. This is not, that's not my point is the concept of being more fulfilled. It's not enough of a motivator for me. What is a motivator for me is I am, I am testifying all day long of where I'm going to be with God and who I am with God and where this thing is going. And so I want to walk out this declaration in the way that, that the most dramatically speaks of the truth of being one with the Lord. The most clearly does. And so I will go, I will go out of myself and into her in a way that I never would if it was just for my own, you know, I'm going to be more fulfilled personally. Does that make sense? There's a greater motivation than your own personal, like, fulfillment. But here's the crazy thing. When we actually do that, we find amazing fulfillment in it. It's actually the the pinnacle of fulfillment to to open your heart and to flow in love like that and to, to be that living testimony. I love this quote. I know I've been hammering you guys with Gary Thomas, but the guy is smart. He's got a lot of, got a lot of good stuff on marriage. If you haven't read Sacred Marriage, get it. But he said this, getting married is agreeing to grow together into each other to virtually commingle our souls so that we share a unique and rare bond. And that unique and that rare bond is a, it's a living declaration of God's intention with humanity. He, God wants humanity to become one with deity. Most stunning truth around it. And that's what marriage is declaring. It's the chief, I think, perhaps the chief purpose for marriage. All right, second. Marriage is a living declaration of Jesus' emotions toward us and then in turn of our emotions toward him. And we we get the theology of that from Ephesians 5. And Paul, I tell you what, Ephesians 5, the more I read it, I just, Paul just really lays it out in clarity. And and it's, I mean, I know the words because I've read it, I don't know, hundreds of times But the more I read it, it just seems to hit me from a new angle virtually every time. I love how the word is alive, and it does that to you. But Ephesians 5, we we know the first two verses of the the marriage teaching there. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. We do marriage, and marriage is telling us all day long the way Jesus feels. The best bliss, euphoria you felt in love, it's only a shadow compared to the reality of God's, I mean, unsurpassing delight and desire for you. Your, Your most euphoric encounter with your spouse in love. It's it's a testimony of the way God feels. It's the way God thinks. When when Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, I mean, he makes it real clear. He uses language that's just precious. Verse 28, he says, So then, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I thought, man, that is such a pact 
loaded thought. He loves his wife, loves himself. And then he goes on. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it. Just as the Lord does the church. Have you thought of Jesus as the nourishing God? As the cherishing God? Because that's how he is. Jesus is a nourishing bridegroom. He's a bridegroom that is so concerned with, with the growth and the life of you. He'll do anything to see to it that you grow and come alive in heart. He is the nourishing bridegroom. He is really, really interested in putting into you everything that's necessary for your growth in love. He will not leave you as you are. Oh, he's so committed to us. Jesus, he, he loves me more than I love myself, for sure. He's so committed to us. He's so for you. He's far more for you than you are for yourself. For sure. You know how I know? You and I will feed ourselves stuff that will stunt our growth, that will poison our growth, that will cause us not to grow or just cause us to flatline, and then we feed ourselves some stuff that will cause us to grow. Jesus is always breathing on the stuff that causes us to grow and always trying us to not go ahead and buy into the stuff that won't cause us to grow. He is way more interested in our growth and our health than even we are. He's a nourishing bridegroom. He's thinking about you. He's been thinking and dreaming about you from eternity past. And he knows all the things that need to go into your life to cause you to grow and come alive in love at the greatest level. He knows all the issues, all the challenges and all the blessings. He knows the exact mixture that you need that will cause your life to grow in the most aggressive way. He knows that. He's the nourishing bridegroom. He's thinking about you. He knows your makeup. He knows the way your heart works. He knows the way your mind works. I love how David said it. He goes, oh, before there's even a word on my mouth, before it's even on my tongue, you know it all together. He knows us better than anyone. He knows us more than we know ourselves, and he loves us more than we love ourselves. And he's for us. He's nourishing us. And he's doing more than that. He's cherishing us. I mean, just, just, I mean, just cherishing us, just holding us. I mean, one of the, the translations of that word is just rubbing us. Just rubbing us. Just, I mean, can you imagine God, all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing? God, uncreated. Just rubbing on you. Just, just love you, little, little buddy. Just rubbing your shoulders. No, it's real. He nourishes us and he cherry, he delights in you. He always oh, so excited about you. In a sense, you could say he's really proud of you. He's cherishing you. You're the one he wants. People get married because they want to spend their whole life with one another. What's that a testimony of? The fact that God wants to spend his whole life with you. He wants to spend forever with you. That's why he made you. He's the cherishing bridegroom. He's the nourishing bridegroom. This is who God is. What an, what an incredible thought. 
And so then marriage, that's why Paul says it the way he does. Because he says, this mystery is not just about a man and a woman. He goes, I'm speaking regarding Christ and the church. Then he goes, and even so, husbands love your wives. He goes, the point of this whole thing, this whole teaching I'm giving is about Jesus and the way he feels about you. And so in marriage, beloved, you and I, we look at our spouse and we go, oh my goodness. There's a way God feels about us that he's trying to declare to us through this feeling that I'm having with my spouse. Through this this wonderful feeling of love, this feeling of, of, of attraction and, and interest and, and wonder and, oh my goodness, that's the way God feels. He's so interested. He's so focused. He's so alive. He's delighted. If you can think of it this way, it's just one of the most crazy thoughts to me. You move the heart of God. You move his heart. I move you. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. He goes, you have no idea. We get the language from the book of Song of Solomon. He goes, turn your eyes away from me. He goes, they've overcome me. In in, in chapter four, he goes, oh, you've ravished my heart. The, The Lord is saying that to us. Jesus, the nourishing, cherishing God is moved by us. You know what? All that wonder you feel in romantic marital love, all that excitement you feel, it's a shadow compared to the way that the bridegroom God feels about you. It's supposed to testify to you of that. That's what marriage is about. The whole time, I mean, you're falling in love with your spouse. You're going, woo, I love you. Wow, I didn't know I could love like this. Oh, something happening. And you go, bing. You like me like that. Oh, my God. Well, I want to I learn how to do this well because I want it to declare to me the truth of the way you feel about me. Do you see my point? I want to go as deep as I can go into the foundational relationship that God gives us that declares his feelings toward us. I want to go as deep as I can go into that. Yes, I want to experience the bliss of it. And so that it can declare to me the truth of his love, his love for me. You know what I'm realizing? I can live on God's love. I can live on that. There's enough oxygen there's enough calories and nutrients. There's enough to nourish every, every bit of my soul in God's love. And I need, I have a capacity, I need massive impartations of revelation of God's love all the time. And I'm shocked about how I will dry up and how my mentalities will, will become rigid and, 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 and self-serving or performance-based or, or you know, full of the fear of man when I'm not nourished on his love. And oh man, if you're telling me that if I will love my wife and, and, and flow back and forth with her and it will create a revelation of, of the depth of feeling that the Lord has for me, oh, sign me up. Because that's one of the chief purposes of marriage, to be a continuous declaration to your heart of the way God feels about you. All those good feelings you felt, nothing compared to the way he feels. All we get on this side is a shadow, beloved. But then, face to face. Love is a choice. 
And love is something that happens to you. We talked in depth about love last week. Love happens to you. You choose to say yes to it. And the question becomes, will you continue to say yes to love so that love will have its finality in you? You love when you have the feelings. You love when you don't. You love when it's, you know, quote unquote, good for you. And you love when it's not, quote unquote, what you want. You love at the expense of self. But, but Paul gives us this truth in there about love that I, I kind of never saw this before. He says, uh, how does he say it? Yeah. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So now plug in the definition that we gave for love last week about laying down your life, serving, giving, blessing for the benefit of the other. Paul is telling us this. When you will sacrificially offer love and lay yourself down in love, it's the most loving thing you can do for yourself. Loving others is one of the chief ways that you can love. He who loves his wife loves himself, he said. Isn't that a wild thought? Serving and giving and blessing and offering to her. Connects us to the love that God has for us. It's one of the chief ways that we love ourselves. And that whole transaction, beloved, it's telling us about Jesus' love. And the more that we grow in it, the more that it declares to us. As a result of this, I realized this. When I, when I comprehend that marital love is a picture of, of, of divine love and, and my love for my spouse is, is a picture of his love for me, God's love for me, then I realize this, that I am compelled to love because I am loved. But secondly, this. I'm responsible then to recognize and admit and repent of the measure that I fall short of loving my wife the way that Jesus loves me. Paul gave us a crazy standard. <laughs> Love her as Christ loves you. Well, guess what he just built right into marriage? The fact that you're going to have to repent a bunch. <laughs> you're going to have to ask for forgiveness a bunch. Because no human guy is going to be able to pull that off without divine intervention. You know what he did? He wrapped us real tight in that moment. He goes, love her as Christ loves you. And I go, uh, but, uh, I'm blowing that all the time. He goes, I know. You're gonna have to find out more about the way that I love you so you can love her right. And, and then there's the standard, friend. And so when you see that you're not living to the standard, ask God to forgive you and ask God to fill you with the revelation of love. Men, you can love your wife powerfully. But you know what the problem is? Many men, they realize their own failings in love and they haven't, they haven't recognized them, they haven't confessed them, they haven't turned away from them. And so what they've done is they just let their marriages just grow flatlined. Ephesians 5 is an interesting chapter and we'll do another session later about headship and authority. See, Ephesians 5, chiefly directed to the men. Most of the verses directed to the men. You know what's interesting to me? Many men focus on headship, being the guy in charge. Headship doesn't mean you're in charge. Headship means you love first, you serve first, you give first, you offer first. Headship means you're responsible. <laughs> She's not meeting your needs, you're the head. Are you loving first, giving first, serving first, blessing first? Are you loving her as you love yourself? Are you laying your life down for her? Because if you'll lay your life down for her, 
That's how you love. You're actually loving yourself through that. Sir, you're the head. You're responsible. Ephesians 5 lays out a whole different picture of headship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ride that donkey <laughs> in a couple of weeks. So when I see that Jesus loves me, and the way he loves me, he loves me in my weakness, he loves me in my sin, he loves me in my brokenness, he doesn't leave me when I act like a jerk, a fool, whatever. And that's how he loves me. Guess what? I'm responsible then to love her like that. Husbands and wives, you want to shatter your spouse's heart? Love them when they act like an idiot. Forgive them. When they don't deserve it. Oh, you will, you will break them. You, you know what's the most incredible thing to me? Is we'll get, in, we'll get in arguments. You can feel the temperature rising. And sort of like in, in, in the spirit, you can kind of see the gloves. The boxing gloves. Here they come out. You're pulling them out of the closet. And everybody's getting ready to throw some punches. But, 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 but the temperature's rising. What if you just stop to get your soul under control? Realize how you're loved by God. And you go, whoa. I am out of line here getting agitated and, and, and coming at you in this argument. I'm wrong. Even if they're totally wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Because I'm not loving you the way he loves me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. What if you did that, sir? What if you did that, husband? I tell you, it, it would shatter. It would, number one, it would shatter that moment. You'd have to convince her that you're being honest. <laughs> what kind of a trick are you trying to pull on me? You know? <laughs> I'm not. I'm being, I'm trying. I'm doing this Jesus thing. I'm really working on this. He loves me. I'm trying. Whew. Now, he loves me when I'm weak, and so I'm doing my best. <laughs> you convince her that you're legit. It would, it would shatter that moment of anger and shatter that moment of, of tension. And it would break her heart. You can't kind of like go, I'm about to break her heart. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to do this. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you know, spitefully love to break her heart. But you recognize that there's a standard by which you've been loved, and that standard is the love that Jesus has for you. Eternal, forever. And you love in the midst of pain and weakness and sin. You love in the middle of it all. You love at the expense of yourself. And that's, that's the standard by which we're responsible to love. He trapped you. God trapped you. You said yes. You said I do. She said I do. Y'all became one. And he said, now love her the way I love you. <laughs> Go for it. (laughs) Give it a rip. It's going to be fun. Because what you're going to do then is you're going to have to find repentance. And you're going to have to go running back to the Lord and go, how do you love me again? Okay, here I go again. Okay, this time I'm going to do it. And he's going to keep going, little buddy. This is a good journey for you. You're going to learn to love. So marriage is a testimony of 
God's eternal purpose for humanity, becoming one with deity in marriage. Secondly, the purpose of marriage is a declaration, a living declaration of Jesus' emotions toward us, and the implications are so vast in both of those. We could meditate on both of those thoughts for hours, because we, we can't conceive of what they really mean. That we're going to be one with deity, and Jesus loves us even in our darkness. It's huge. And then thirdly, purpose of marriage. Marriage is a mechanism to train us in holiness. Now, I got more purposes, but we're just going to do these for today. You see why I was untying the knot at the beginning? Because God is way more interested in our marriages. He's not aloof or, or standoffish or impersonal, but he's right there in it. And he goes, I want, I want to use marriage as a mechanism to train you in holiness. I want you to live the cross. He calls us to live the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. That was a word about human martyrdom to the disciples. But it's also a pictorial to us about the way we're to live our lives. Always laying it down. Always, not my will, but yours be done. Following Jesus by living the cross. And so marriage, it is this, this opportunity. It's this it's this training program. It's a training program to, to train you in holiness. We've made this point before, but what if marriage isn't really about trying to make you happy, but it's about trying to make you holy? That, that's really the point of it. Marriage is to train you in holiness, and thereby, in holiness, you will find the deepest well of happiness available for humanity in this age. It's called the beauty of holiness. The beauties of holiness. I mean, to live holy, without shame, burning with bright righteousness, having the glory of the Lord resting on you because you're being com- com- compelled by love and, and, and uh, pressed in, compressed into the, to the knowledge of who God is, to the picture of, tri- of Christ. Marriage, it, it, it's to train us, it's to change us, it's to conform us, it's to make us look more like Jesus. And Jesus, he, he laid his life down for love. So that's what marriage becomes, an exercise in laying your life down for love. It's living the cross by laying your life down for them. That's what marriage is about. It's about living the cross by laying your life down for them. Remember Jesus? Greater love is no man than this that he laid his life down for his friend. This is love, that we lay our lives down. Marriage, is, it's the opportunity, it's the training ground to lay your life down. Think about Philippians 2 and that, that little explanation that, that Paul gives about Jesus' humility and how much of a requirement that is for us in, in, in all that we do in life, but, but surely in our marriage. Let's just look at it again. So I just want to read through it. These, ver- these words, oh man. They really find us out, don't they? Philippians 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus Christ, God. God preexistent. God from forever. He, he Being in the form of God, he did not consider it Robbery to be equal with God. It was totally legitimate for him to be 
uh, equal with God. He is equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. When we say, live the cross, when when we use that phrase, I think these verses describe it really well. This mixed with the John 15. Greater love is no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. So it's compelled by love. You're laying your life down. And here it is in Philippians 2. You're making yourself of no reputation. You're not after your own ambition. You're humbling yourself, even if it's killing you. Humbled himself to the point of death. Even the death of the cross. I think it's probably rare that in our marriages we actually humble ourselves to the point of death. That's probably rare. I think we probably have our list of rights, our list of of things that we deserve, and when one of those is is crossed when, when our spouse crosses what we deserve, we then begin to fight for our rights. But the calling of Christianity is to humble yourself to the point of even death. I realized this in my own life, and my wife and I were talking this through. I said, you know, I realized that in... Uh, when, we, when you and I are arguing, sometimes it's like I'm just baiting you. I'm baiting you to make a mistake. I'm baiting you to sin so that I can then point at your sin as what needs to get handled to fix our argument rather than my sin. I, in fact, in arguments, I'll look for what she's done wrong all the while justifying my own wrongs. So I'll try to stay, I'll try to stay, you know, within the, the legal bounds of, of, of being, you know, holy, agitated. I'm angry, but I'm not sinning. Got a verse for that. And all the while I'm taking note of where she's agitated, where she's saying things that she shouldn't. And I'm And the whole time I'm making the list and now I'm getting hurt because she's crossing boundaries that she shouldn't cross because we're in covenant and she made some vows to me and she's going to love me and what about loving me like Christ and what about all that? So now I got ammunition. And I told my wife, I said, you know what I think the more I think about this? If I'm going to humble myself even to to death like Jesus did, if I'm going to actually be trained in holiness... I think that when you and I are in an argument, probably the point is, even if, even if you know, you're 100% wrong, as I deem it, and, and I'm 100% right, probably the point is, I'm not supposed to try to figure out how to get you to not be wrong anymore. I'm probably supposed to figure out how I can learn how to forgive. What an amazing thought. Wait a minute. Instead of me trying to figure out how to make her holy, what about me being trained in righteousness? What about me figuring out how to be merciful? So she's doing me wrong. I'm, y'all know my wife. 
Like she's, my mom just laughed the loudest. She's so sweet and tender. Like, okay, I'm making it like she's this gorilla. She's like Bambi. But let's just imagine. It's journeying into our imaginations that my wife was doing me wrong. Okay. So in my estimation, she's doing me wrong. But maybe what it's all supposed to be about is me figuring out how to be merciful. Me being forgiving. Me being tender. You know what would be amazing is if when you're in an argument with your spouse, if you turned that moment into a training opportunity about how you can be more godly. Rather than looking at their issue and trying to get them to fix it. There are opportunities to bring up flaws. That I'm, not, I'm not saying don't ever bring up something that you see as a problem or a flaw. That's not the point. But when you're in the heat of battle, to point out the flaws is probably not what you're supposed to be learning in that moment. What you're probably supposed to be learning in that moment is how to love and forgive and be merciful and kind and humble, even under the point of death. See, marriage is a training ground to help to get you to live the cross as much as we don't want to live it. It's such a perfect training ground to get us to live the cross. It's, it's, about, it's about a lifestyle of, of, of living forgiveness and, and living selflessness and living mercy and kindness and patience and confession and repentance. I, I love what this one author, he's written a book and it's about marriage. It's called, What Did You Expect? Because... He says, people don't they, don't, they don't have such wrong mentalities in marriage. They think, I'm going to, you know, we're going to have, you know, like right off into the sunset and it's just going to be happy. And, and, you know, they've got Cinderella in the back of their mind or something. And they just think it's just, you know, Prince Charming. We're just going to ride off. And you're, you're marrying a sinner and you're living in a fallen world. What'd you expect? You're going to have problems. You're going to pledge your whole heart to a sinner. Come on. Of course you're going to have challenges. That, by, I mean, it's just obvious. That whole connection is then therefore trying to train you in how to love and forgive and be merciful and be kind and be selfless because you're pledging to a person that's definitely going to do you wrong. And the world is not a perfect context. Things are going to break. Why? Because sin is in the world. It's sin-ridden. And so marriage becomes a lifelong training program to learn how to love, to learn how to forgive, to learn how to be merciful. You're going to get a ton of opportunities. (laughs) We should put that in the vows. Do you promise to love her? Give her tons of opportunities to forgive you? <laughs> give her tons of opportunities to be merciful to a dork? You know what I mean? We should put that right in the vows. Because that's what it is. It's a, it's a training ground that gives us so many chances to learn what it means to be kind. To learn what it means to forgive. One, one author said, I think that's the main reason people get married, is to learn how to forgive. I'm landing, but I want to land this point this way. 
This is a, a, a mentality that Jesus put in the Sermon on the Mount. Last verse, Matthew 7. Let's just look at it. There, there's not different rules in marriage than there are that govern the kingdom. They're all the same rules. It's just we don't apply them like that all the time. Because when it's marriage and our hearts are wide open and, and we're intimate and we're susceptible and to one another, it's something like all of a sudden all of our, our opportunities to protect and, and, and you know, keep ourselves safe, all those things come out. But man, if you, take, if you take the Sermon on the Mount and apply it head on into your marriage, I mean, it's amazing how that value system will bring you to the end of yourself. Look at Matthew 7. Look at this. Imagine if this was just applied directly in marriage. It should be. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Wrong. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your, we could just put spouse's eye. But do not consider the plank in your own. Or how can you say to your spouse, let me, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. Then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck. And I'm putting in spouse from your spouse's eye. You know, I stared at that. I remember before I wrote the book on Sermon on the Mount, I stared at that verse. And I went, well, what are you saying, Lord? I mean, surely there are guys out there that are like way worse in certain areas than me. And are you trying to say that every time that if I'm talking to somebody else that, that you know, that my issue is worse than theirs, even when I know it's not? Like, how do I even apply this? He says it's the way you approach the situation with, with, a, with a heart of mercy and, and looking to yourself. And, and, and the point of this is this, that any issue as it relates to you, when it's somebody else's problem, it's always a speck. But your issue is always a plank. And you need to deal with people who are in sin in that same way. Tenderly, as if you're just talking about their speck. And, and when you're dealing with your own issue before the Lord, you and the Lord, whatever the issue is, it's a plank. In other words, don't let yourself off the hook while you condemn someone else. And what if we did that in marriage? You know, your spouse might have the list of five things they did wrong, and you've only got the one. What do we tend to do? We brush the one under the carpet and go, man, those five issues, unless you change that, I'm really, I can't, I'm, I'm done. Well, you're, you've got a plank in your own eye. They've got five little specks. Deal with this, the plank that's in your own eye. Humble yourself. I mean, this thing is so critical. This marriage thing is a training ground. You know what our failure in marriage is about? Our failure to, to uh, our failure and desire, our, our failure of desire to try to be trained in holiness. We don't want to go through that crucible of pain and, and purging and suffering. Hey, look, we all want the fire of God. Last time I checked, when I put my hand in fire, it hurts. Fire will purge you, and the purging process is not always easy. It doesn't always go with what my soul wants. But I tell you, it will bring you to a, a place of clarity and beauty and holiness if you allow the process to do its work. And marriage is it's the chief environment. It's such a, a precious environment. It's a crucible to learn holiness. 
You get to practice it as a lifestyle all day long, every day. You have one person that you've pledged to love. And then what you do is you get to live your whole life being trained in holiness and loving that person by living the cross. That's the purpose of marriage. It's key purpose of marriage. Oh, beloved. We've got to get a proper perspective on what this thing is about. As long as we think that marriages are for our own fulfillment, to make me happy, getting married to have babies, I'm getting married to be in a stronger position financially, that's just all foolishness. Let's get a right perspective on the purposes of what marriage is even for in the kingdom of God and then allow the process to draw us, to train us in love, to be a living testimony of of the way Jesus loves and and, and to be trained in holiness. Oh man, that's powerful stuff. Your Your marriage is a power center if you'll allow it to be. Good. Amen. All right, let's stand. (laughs) we'll do some more purposes for marriage next week you never know we might grow to I have three more for next week we might grow to six if I really pray hard this week or if you guys pray for me maybe for revelation you never know there is a bliss there is a purpose of marriage that is bliss I'm going to give you that one it's not all broccoli and asparagus but that one's coming I'm going to give you that one last We've been at the vegetable buffet. I asked one of our leaders, I said, do you think I'm being too tough on them about marriage? They go, no. So many people have a fantasy island mentality of marriage. Keep going, keep going. I am. He goes, anybody that's been married any time knows what you're saying is right. <laughs> anybody that's been married any time knows that it's hard to be married. Beloved, he's trying to, he's trying to draw us to himself. He's trying to bring us to himself in marriage. He's trying to make us like Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. I just want to pray this way. If anything I'm saying this morning is pricking you. you And you just need the Lord to release grace to you. I just want to invite you forward. I want to pray for you. I just want to ask the Lord to release grace. If you're getting pricked in areas, maybe there's a pattern of behavior seeing, man, I gotta change that. I need grace. Maybe it's a mentality, just an overall mentality that you're carrying. What marriage is for. I just want the Holy Spirit to come and release grace.